When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Welcome. Uh, I'm sitting here with uh, Professor Dora Zhang. So first of all, thank you, Dora, for making time to speak with me today. Mm, thanks for having me. So uh, uh, I'm just going to introduce you briefly. And then um, we're sitting here in Wheeler Hall at the University of California at Berkeley. It's a beautiful, sunny November day, blue skies. I walk to the Redwood Grove up here. <laughs> it's kind of the good life in California. <laughs> And you're teaching a class right now at the University of California called The Good Life. And before that, I just want to introduce you. So you're a scholar of um, what we call modernism, probably sort of Anglo-American European literatures. Uh, your book, Strange Likeness, Description in the Modernist Novel, looks at how description is something much more interesting than just describing the world around us or the scene in a novel, but it actually carries other dimensions besides just setting up a scenario. Um, and you've written on Proust and photography, Wolf, uh, and you publish also in sort of more sort of mainstream non-academic places, LA Review books, etc. Mm -hmm. And at Berkeley right now, you're teaching a class called The Good Life. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about the idea behind this class and what motivates you to go in and talk to students about the good life? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, so I think it was born um, in part out of um, a, a literature, an earlier literature and philosophy class that I taught in the English department, which I organized around um, three main questions, which were, who are we, what can we know, and how should we live? Um, and, you know, we have one semester to cover this, so obviously very selective um, and I found, you know, there was a lot of interest in this, in the section where we talked about how should we live? And, um, I think that, so I sort of wanted to have a class that was kind of just on that question, um, but that also moved away from purely the sort of ethics and moral philosophy where that question is more often asked, um, and thinking about, um, you know, what can literature tell us about this, but also how can we think about that question in relation to um, the kind of historical material circumstances that we find ourselves in, which, you know, these philosophical inquiries tend to be less concerned about. Right? They are operating at a, a level of abstraction that's not always um, attuned to historical specificities. So I was also, you know, I have um, in several times taught and been very influenced by the work of Lauren Berland and particularly Cruel Optimism, like a lot of people. Um, and so my thinking for this class of The Good Life was sort of inspired by these dual kind of forces. Um, so I was thinking about fantasies of the good life and, you know, what is it that um, keeps us attached to fantasies of the good life, even when... They, you know, may be obstacles to our flourishing, as Berlant says about cruel optimism, um, which really is a book in many ways about the good life and about fantasies of the right. good life. Um, and when I started, you know, looking into this, um, I was just Googling like 
other people's classes on the good life. And I found a lot of um, classes that were, you know, that kind of happiness 101 right. um, or, or like habits, like how to inculcate, you know, good habits. Um, like the science of happiness, yes, the positive psychology, very exactly. popular college courses right now. Very so popular. Very much written up. I think Yale University offers one at exactly. NYU where I teach. It is supposed to have the longest waiting list of all the classes yeah. and choices. So they're positive psychology, maximize yourself, increase your performance, exactly. get up in the morning, right. drink water, meditate, <laughs> make your bed. Right. get dressed and you'll have a good day. Exactly. Not to caricature this, but there's a right. kind of optimization of yourself. Exactly. Yes, it's all about kind of how to optimize ourselves as much as possible, right? And that's sort of what the idea of a good life is. Um, and so I wanted to approach it from a more critical angle as I think, um, you know, is standard or at least much more common in the humanities. Um, right. And I, but I wanted to also think about, um, I wanted to take seriously though the desire for that kind of, you know, for um, that kind of optimization or that desire for, um, um, you know, better opportunities, kind of better version of yourself. Right. And I think it's also very easy to just heap scorn on that and to sort of see it as um, you know, hollow or sort of vulgar in some way. Um, and I, I definitely don't, I, I think there are all kinds of issues with the sort of very naive optimism of that right, kind of approach. Right. But there's something too about that desire, you know, um, that I think is important to take seriously and to not simply, um, and, and to sort of treat without contempt. So. Right. That's kind of the line that I was trying to walk. And I tell my students in this class um, on the first day that this is not a happiness one-on-one class. Right. Um, so that they, you know, because a lot of it is actually kind of a bummer. <laughs> a lot it's of what we need is a bummer. So, you know, I don't want them to think that we're sort of just going to have this class where we try to figure out, like, how to be our best selves. But you don't want to take that away, this kind of right. aspiration or we all want to be happy. Yeah. Right. We know from not only from people like Freud, but probably from ourselves mm -hmm. that we're often not quite so happy, although we know our conditions. Let's assume right now we're sitting mm -hmm. in a Berkeley office. Mm -hmm. Let's assume we're taking out extreme poverty, mm -hmm. real deprivation, right. like conditions that are really so inalterable or so overwhelming that there's not even a conversation about the good life. Right. So you, so the, the word good then, you said much a little while ago, in philosophy, it would probably be moral philosophy or mm -hmm. ethics, how to be a good person. Mm -hmm. But you don't quite only mean that, right? It's right. not just how to be a good person no. in the community with others. Right. No, definitely. Um, yeah. And I think it is very much about sort of um, how do we think about these very kind of individual personal questions, which I think is one way we often think about the question of the good life. Um, of, on the level of individual behavior or, um, you know, personal ambition or personal goals. How do we think about that in light of the kinds of, um, you know, actual historical material circumstances right. that people find themselves in, who is less, you know, um, who is excluded from the possibility of achieving yeah. the good yeah. life um, yeah. or for whom is that possibility, you know, more attractive because of, you know, I don't know, certain narratives or where they're coming from or um, whatever it may be. So it's, it is very much about emphasizing um, the kind of larger external forces mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. just the sort of individual oh, right. or the question of character or, or um, personal ethics. Which yeah. would be the ultimately an abstraction in a way. It's yes. the subject or the individual. Yes, exactly. And can you say a little bit more about Lauren Berlant's work? So there's, there's a book called Cruel Optimism, mm -hmm. which is a kind of very long, sustained critique of our attachment to this idea of the good life. Mm -hmm. And she also says, I'm not dismissing this. I just want yes. to take apart yes. where this attachment becomes a problem. And yes. she was a professor at the University of Chicago. So mm -hmm. they passed away, I think, a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, or just very recently. Very actually. recently. Yeah, really yeah. Ups, yeah. great loss for everybody. Yeah, yeah, so really great loss. And that book has been a very influential book yeah. for people, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, it has been a very influential book for people. It's actually very interesting to me to see the outpouring of kind of grief, which I also felt. I mean, I didn't know Berlant at all personally, yeah. so no personal relationship with them. But um, the outpouring in the wake of of um, of their death was really quite striking to me. I think because this. Um, I mean, obviously, Berlant has a very large body of work. Um, and import is an important in many fields, and you know I came to it through the field of affect theory. But um, I think cruel optimism, in particular, just like named something, a kind of you know a structure of feeling, to use Raymond Williams's term, that um, just struck a chord with many people. And I think you know it's historically specific. It's kind of about the breakdown of. Um, um, you know, the welfare state in, a, in the post-war period, but really in the last few decades, it's very right. kind of focused on the contemporary period. And I think it's something that the students, that my students, but I also, but my students definitely um, um, connect to, I think, because those promises of, you know, prosperity, of, of just economic stability, of kind of a, a decent paying job of health insurance, of home ownership, all of these things are so much less um, less possible or less right. within their grasp. So, but at the same time, you know, there's nothing that, that, that still continues to be the kind of normative ideal. Is, is the good life, can it be mapped onto the American dream as an idea, sort of this upward mobility, everyone can make it, if you're sort of bootstrap your way out of it, mm -hmm. if you work hard, opportunities abound, mm -hmm. you'll realize your potential, you'll own a home, you'll raise a family, you'll be yeah. safe and secure. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very tied to that. Yeah. I mean, I think our, our kind of fantasy of the good life is very um, um, closely related to something like the American dream. Yeah, yeah. And we do talk about that quite a lot in in the class. Um, can you say one thing just for our listeners, Dave? Sure. You said the structure of feeling. Can you just tease that apart a little bit what that means sure. what is the structure right so so i mean raymond williams uses this term to name um something that um kind of is uh, something that's still very emergent that isn't captured by just talking about institutions and kind of formal structures but that um you know indexes a historical moment okay. um but that isn't but that is still very kind of nascent and, right. and a little inchoate um right. and and that captures something that that is that escapes purely you know analysis in terms of like structures and policies okay and there and to go back to this cruel optimism book so this book is trying to say we're attached to the good life mm -hmm. it's understandable i think the book's strength is that Lauren Balance says it's understandable we're attached to it. We want this. Right. But this want or this desire gets in our own way. Yeah, yeah. It can it it it's actually a an obstacle to our flourishing. So um and I think that's the that's the phrase that, that Berlant uses, that um what ha that that a relationship of cruel optimism obtains, you know, um, that not all optimism is cruel, but a, a relationship of cruel optimism obtains when the thing that we desire is a kind of obstacle to our own flourishing. Um, and I think, yeah, there's something about that that's so immediately uh, kind of uh, relatable, to use a term yeah, that, that right. my students use a lot. Um, so you can sort of see it play out in all kinds of domains, right, both in this kind of larger um, political stage, but also in personal relationships right. as well. Um, and we see that in a lot of the works that we read in these different ways. So, so after you tell the students in the first class, this is not about maximizing your happiness yeah. course. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do in the second class? When you, when do you, <laughs> what do you let them or, or, or introduce them to? Right. Um, so we start, we actually start off with Antigone, which is a little bit of an outlier from the other yeah. texts. It's in part because I want to have some range because it's also an introduction to comparative literature. So um, I want to have some range, um, but, um, and I've just found Antigone such a rich text to teach. Um, but that, I, I, I put that as part of the unit on just um, what, uh, should I forget the name of the title of this now, but something like, what should we do or um it's about anyway it's sort of like con you know it's a conflict between different 
ethical systems, right, different right. worldviews. Um, I kind of start out by saying, well, um, if we think that um, for most of us, you know, the idea of the good life entails acting appropriately, right? Sort of doing doing right. the right thing. That's right. what it is. It's called doing the right thing. That's <laughs> so um, you know. It, it seems it entails, among other things, doing the right thing. But what do you do when you have this kind of conflict when um, it's not clear what it means to do the right thing or when doing the right thing um, in one domain, you know, results right. in kind of um, difficulties or troubles in another domain. Um, and um, yeah, so we use I use that as a way. So that's kind of a more standard in many ways, sort of um, the kind of um, the sort of more like ethical, more right. philosophical approach. So I start with that um, and, and then sort of move on. To I assume things. it's really that makes it really palpable to students that there's a conflict between what you want to do as an individual versus yeah what you're obligated to do as part of a community because there's a law, there's, yeah. a, there's a moral obligation. So Antigone has to bury your brother. Then there's a legal obligation. You can't do it. So you have, a, so it's, so it's kind of dramatizes this conflict. Yeah. How does it end again, Antigone? I can't, I'm trying to How remember. Does it end? Yeah. Everyone dies. Oh, okay. Everybody dies. Um, well, so what do you tell the student then? This is the solution to this dilemma? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's kind of an intractable <laughs> problem, right? Um, and, um, I, I, I think we have had no happy <laughs> ending so far. Um, we may end with one happy ending, but, um, yeah, it is very much, I mean, one of the main conflicts is, and one way that it's often been understood is the conflict between the individual and the state right. or the community. So, I mean, you can think about it in terms of the community or the state as the sort of authoritarian reading of Creon, Antigone's right. uncle, the king, who, you know, says this is the law of the polis. Um, enemies can't receive burial. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that we see through Antigone sort of different ways of of articulating the conflict yeah. and um, you know, I give them this reading by um, this essay by Bonnie Honig, who's now a political philosopher, who's actually, I think also now written a book that is on Antigone, but this is an earlier essay where she contextualizes it in the, in the, um, in, uh, she discusses it in the context of you know, um, democracy in fifth century Athens, the time of yeah. Sophocles' writing, and it makes this very counterintuitive case that Creon is actually the embodiment of democracy in um, kind of in principle, but not in process. Like he's not, you know, wow. solicit people's opinions yeah. in a democratic fashion, but he kind of embodies this democratic principle of. Um, treating everybody the same, right. you know, which also has the flip side that everyone is interchangeable. So yeah, he's, right. he's rejecting the kind of singularity and uniqueness of the individual yeah. Antigone wants to uphold. So this to me is like a really interesting kind of counterintuitive reading. So I, I that's like amazing. Yeah, yeah. The students with that, which they don't normally, their sympathies much more tend to be on the side of Antigone. But actually I find often that they really they sort of just want to, um, they see both Antigone and Creon as being, um, you know, single-minded and, um, and, and sort of blind to the other right. perspective. So they actually kind of take a very Hegelian view. In, in like something. attached to an ideal or something. Yeah. They become attached to an ideal that's almost outside of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're unable to find yeah. kind of some yeah. compromise. So they often actually like, they, they often sort of, advocate for a compromise or see compromise as right. um, a desirable. But it's a great opening of her class also when you just mentioned that Creon is Antigone's uncle that I think that makes that in one play there's so many different levels and dimensions and so there's a relation between them that's familial but yeah. is it going to be broken and it's right. the state versus the individual women versus men right. that death death versus life right, so right but they can't be resolved really on for one on one side or the other right right yeah yeah i mean and creon is right creon doesn't die at the end i shouldn't say right. that everyone dies creon yeah. doesn't die at the end and there is perhaps some sense that he may go on to may be actually affected by this and sort of change right. his um kind of his authoritarian ways, but um, let me ask you a really naive question. It's probably not a classicist question. 
So what do you think Sophocles' audience was, what did he expect them to get from a play like this? Because mm -hmm. this is their world. For us, this is so old and it's mm -hmm. such an old play and mm -hmm. we think, oh, it's classics. Mm -hmm. But there were people at yeah. some point confronted with this for whom this was the present. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. And so I mean, I'm by no means a scholar of classics, but um, my understanding is that, um, you know, that, I mean, so the play is set in this kind of mythical time of Thebes, um, right. which is not the present of Sophocles' own time, but right. he would, his audience would absolutely have been understanding it as commentary on their own yeah. time and the transition to democracy and, this kind of entire shift in worldviews, um, you know, from rule by a few families to, you know, rule oh, right. by a much yeah, more, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, much more, a, a more egalitarian um, uh, uh, system. I mean, of course, democracy, Athenian democracy excluded many people, women, slaves, etc. Um, but yeah, so I think they would have seen it as kind of working through some of these problems and sort of both um, both a kind of um, a grappling with what it means to transition from, you know, this one kind of worldview that privileges yeah, family yeah, ties, yeah. individuals to another that privileges ties to the one's duties as a citizen and as a member of the police, um, and also seeing the, the limitations of that yeah. um, as hmm. well. Yeah, yeah. Where do you go after... Um... Antigone. So then we move to Man Bovary. Okay. <laughs> so like quite a jump. Um, so we go from when is Sophocles? This is the fifth century. Fifth BC. century BC yeah. to not to the eighteen fifties. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So Flaubert's yeah. writing Madame yeah. Bovary. Okay. Is it, is it the eighteen forties? Forties or fifties? Yeah. yeah. I'm sort of forgetting. Um, yeah. So then, then we have a kind of unit on um, something like I don't know. Uh, like dreams of the good life or something. And that's very focused on um, these characters and the kind of, you know, um, the desire for something better, you know, these characters who are right. um, constantly lusting after something better, um, which is actually also very tied up with their desire for material goods. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, Madame Bovary, we spend a few weeks on Madame Bovary. Um, and, and what does she want? <laughs> Emma Bovary, sort of, it's a question about a woman in the mid 19th yeah. century. And right. Flaubert is very interesting. It's a male yeah. novelist in France, and mm -hmm. he identifies completely with her, very famously, right. like Madame right. Saint Moi. Yeah. And he writes about what she wants, and it becomes a novel. I think the people read, like, what does the 19th century want? Mm -hmm. After you have, to summarize, you have the French Revolution, you have some kind of more egalitarian society, mm -hmm. but people are left kind of wanting something mm -hmm. for themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and so we talk about it in the context of the rise of the bourgeoisie and kind of the rise of capitalism. Um, and, you know, Emma Bovary is this bourgeois woman who, um, you know, really a member of the petty bourgeoisie, though, who, yeah. who you know, country doctor, that's her husband, um, and who sees, you know, these... Um, these kind of aristocrats who goes to you know, a very formative moment when she goes to a ball in the, the first section and right. sees that, you know, even like their skin is better <laughs> or something. They're like thoroughbreds. I mean, these are, you know, really amazing descriptions. Um, and, you know, she's sort of very susceptible to um, romantic fantasies that she reads in, um, novels right she's a kind of latter-day quixote in a way she right kind of has like made the mistake of thinking that literature is life um and so yeah i mean she wants these things i mean i think what's so interesting about the novel is that um in part through or, or in no small part really through kind of flaubert's use of irony um for which he's so famed um he can really present the he can present her desires um, the content of her desires as, you know, totally banal and kind of cliche and conventional. You know, she wants like, like, um, you know, kisses by moonlight and like a lover to come out on the balcony and sing to her and toss mm -hmm. her roses, like, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and she wants like nice dresses and, you know, um, fashionable serving bowls and these kinds of things. Um, so, you know, I think he's very... Um, He's he's 
ironic or he's kind of critical. He's saying that he's he's um um yeah, I should say he's ironic about the content of her desires, but I think there's something also really moving at, about the fact of her desire and, and sort of the intensity yeah, yeah, yeah. of her desire. And there's also, I think, something quite transgressive about that. I mean, and you know, I have students who often point out, well, I think what she really wants is something like freedom and autonomy, which is not available to her as a woman right. at this time. Um, but not that she's articulating it in those in those terms. But um, so there's something at once, you know, kind of sort of um, something kind of mocking in, in yeah. the novel's treatment of, of her and at the same time, you know, sympathetic. Right. Um, and it's that knife's edge between yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, pathos and, and irony that makes Colbert so kind of amazing. But that's so important. What you said, what Lauren Balance's work—it doesn't dismiss right. these desires right. and the, the the simplicity of being condescending and saying people or people want a fancy car or right. they want to have Kylie Jenner's makeup or right. they want to have right. a fancy dress or they want to go to you know a, a, you know a night in a fancy hotel. It's not illegitimate to have that. Right. And some so what you're talking about more is what. What gives rise to this desire? What? Mm -hmm. How does it shape their lives? How mm -hmm. does it influence it? Rather than mm -hmm. what's the object itself? Right. The object yes. has significance, but yes. it's not about ridiculing the object. Right. Because also we could all have different desires. And right. It's like, you know, I may like this car and you may right. not like a car at all. You want another bike or something. Right. And it's, it's, so it's easy to sort of dismiss the object, but leave everything else intact. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that the students really... Um, respond differently to Emma. You know, some of them are more sympathetic. Some of them yeah. see her as very kind of selfish and narcissistic, which she is. Um, you know, I think that um, she's also she's also not maternal. I think this is important. And this is something that is, for some of the students, something they find very damning about her. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's also interesting to kind of just think about like what how we treat desires and, you know, um, women's desires in this case, um, and um, how that, um, um, yeah, what's kind of acceptable and what's, you That's know, beyond right. the pale. Yeah. And it's hard to accept in a way that a woman could have desires that conflict with her presumably assigned role yeah. of being a mother. Yeah. And then the yeah. says, why would she have this role and the father could have all sorts of desires, for right. example. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think one of the things that's kind of transgressive about her. Yeah. Where do you go after Madame Bovary? So then we um then we um so in a previous iteration of the class, um we also read um, the Great Gatsby, oh, yeah. um, and because and and you know ended up not doing it this semester, but there I think it follows on very naturally from right. um, from Madame Bovary yeah. because then there's sort of more on the idea of the um, of of the American dream and the Great Gatsby is so central to that kind of mythology right. um, as kind of the embodiment both of the American dream and also the critique of the American right. theme. So, um, yeah, so we do that. And um, then, um, and that really kind of also ties into the sort of, it's sort of a later moment of um, many of the same kind of conflicts or the relationship between like the bourgeoisie and the desire for, um, uh, you know, the emulation of the aristocracy and mm -hmm. new money and old money. You really see that playing out in, in, um, in the Great Gatsby as well, in the place of objects and the kind of, you right. know, um, the sort of fetishistic power that right. objects can have is is there as well. It's such a it's such an amazing book. I think when that it is sort of the one of the great American novels, yeah. and it's it's such a severe kind of deconstruction of the American dream yeah. for sure. And then I think. It's very hard to to even think about the Great Gatsby without Leonardo DiCaprio right. getting in the way. I feel right. like the the right. images are really right. or the earlier ones, I guess Robert Redford or something. But yeah. there's something about the I don't even know if it's a tragedy, but the kind of brutality of that book. Yeah, it's just stunning. Yeah, in a way, and it's yeah. sort of it's considered oh, this is the great celebration of right. this good life. Like right, that like good the boring twenties. Yeah, that good life is really harsh on most people, including yeah. himself, including yeah. of course he ends up. 
not in a good place yet yeah. in the pool yeah yeah, so. yeah absolutely yeah. which i think sort of sometimes i start my students out by saying you know let's wait where he ends up mm-hmm. because there's an identification with him right as the achiever right. exactly. the one who made it the one right. who overcame his roots kind of thing exactly yeah and it's funny how to shift students attention to the buchanans Oh, yeah. And how horrible they really are. Right. And they're really the American dream right. that he wants right. to be part of. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that that's the society he wants access to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's uh, there's a lot in it. And it's one of the texts that um, a lot of them are likely to have read it in high school. Right. So the hope is that they will see something different right. this time. Um but yeah, I hesitated, you know, to put it on the syllabus because yeah. I feel like, oh, they've all read it. It's sort of so, sure. um, it's so, it's so kind of entered, you know, it's, it's national a, consciousness. Right. Um, it's like an archetype somehow. Yeah, exactly. You can almost not take it apart. It's, yeah, yeah. But then I sort of felt like, well, if you're going to talk about the American dream, this is really a good place to, to, te- to talk about it because it's so much... Right. Part feeds so much right. into that mythology. So what else do you do instead of the Gatsby? Now? Then, um, so I actually just took that out this this semester yeah. because, and we had like various classes that we were missing, so it just ended up working on the syllabus. Um, and then we do A Raisin in the Sun, the okay. play by Lorraine Hansberry. Lorraine Hansberry's play, yeah. yeah. which is also, you know, about the American dream. Right. Sort of this other side of who is, you know. Can you just tell us quickly what the plot is of that? It's sure. amazing. Like it's the late 50s, is that? Yeah, it's it's like mid 50s. 57 yeah. or 50s something like that yeah, yeah yeah um and it's about this family the younger family yeah. who live in the south side of chicago in kind of a slum um and uh the matriarch of the family the the father who's died um his death has provided a ten thousand dollar insurance check and right. so there's sort of conflict about how to use this money it can be really transformative the son walter wants to use it to buy a liquor store and the mother um you know, has this dream of buying a house and ends up buying a house um and um in a in a white neighborhood in a white working class neighborhood but in a white neighborhood um and you know a member of that neighborhood comes and tries to kind of buy them out and says you know you're not actually really welcome here because they're an african-american family because they're i don't even think oh, yeah, pointed this out. so lorraine hansby yeah. is writing yes about the aspiration of a post-war African-American exactly. family that real estate is the is the gateway to yes. economic independence and freedom in a certain yes. way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, and um, then, yeah, so they, they kind of end up not, not selling and moving into the house. But it's, you know, it's a very, I think it's actually a much more ambiguous ending than is often um, and sort of sometimes I think thought of as a triumphant ending. You know, they stood up for their dignity. Right. They're moving to the house, but I think it's sort of there's a real suggestion that there's something you know ominous things are going to happen. They're going to meet with real violence. You know, right, right, right. It's not happy in the sense that racial strife has been overcome or right. that discrimination has been overcome or that they're going to right. now be um, happy there even. So. Um, yeah, I think it's it's a really brilliant play. Um, it's very it was a huge commercial success yes. as well, um, and it's a very engaging play and very sort of accessible. But I think it's um, it also has complexity and, and nuance in a way that may not even be immediately. Obvious. Also, the mother son conflict is really hard yes. because everybody wants to either live out the supposed legacy of the father or shift and mm-hmm. be something new. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. also this, and I don't want to do what your, your conventional, right. somewhat cautious approach. Right. This right. is America. You got to try something. Right. You got to right. wage or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, um, the son and Walter, um, could be read, you know, as a sort of like Gatsby and kind of wanting to, right. um, you know, to, to, break the mold to sort of, you know, um, he has these aspirations of of upward mobility and they're specifically around, um, enterprise and kind of entrepreneurship and, um, you know, uh, and, and owning a business, um, and making money. So it's sort of this one set of like very capitalist values. And then, um, the mother kind of offers, I think, a an alternative, set of values and there are and you know each of the characters then there's also a younger sister benita who's right. very forward thinking and 
feminist and pan-Africanist. And there, so, and then there's a a Walter's wife. So there, it's really an ensemble piece that has a lot of, um, it's very um, humanist and it's kind of sympathies for all of the different characters and all of their different desires and their different visions of what it means to do something big, which is something that, um, you know, a number of the younger family want to do. And it's also interesting that the good life or the American dream, is it to opt into a kind of structure that exists? So right. if you buy real estate, you're going to move up, etc. You're going to get a good job with the pension, etc. You're going to move up. But then this makes clear, this isn't available to lots of people, right. even before the 70s, before right. the state dismantles all right. sorts of public services, like lots right. of things are not available. And right. the question is, is the good life, is it something that requires individual actions outside of what the common yeah. understanding is what you should be doing? Mm-hmm. Do you need to actually strike out in a certain way mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. become independent? And then good is no longer this kind of moral obligation toward others, but toward yourself. Right, right. That's- yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think that post-war context, I mean, you know, the GI Bill yeah. um, and, you know, policies like right. subsidized housing effectively and the kind of the building of suburban lots. I mean, this is what kind of actually gave birth to that particular vision of right. the American dream. Right. That we're so the white picket right, fence right, right. that we're so familiar with. Yeah. And that's also the time of, you know, redlining and kind of exclusion of African-Americans from right. all right. of those kinds of policies. Yeah. And then, yeah, I think, yes, there's this question about what, is it possible to kind of to to is it even possible to sort of have your own to articulate your own vision of the good life or to pursue something that that doesn't isn't just you know this kind of normative model right. or what's available to you and I think some of the characters see that or see that possibility. It, it's like the first section of Michael Cunningham's The Hours, mm. his rewriting of Mrs. Dalloway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where a woman's possibility for the good life in the 50s is total conformity. Right. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you become a perfect housewife. Mm-hmm. You wait when the husband comes home in the evening, you mm-hmm. bake the cake and mm-hmm. everything is beautiful. Yeah. So is the good life a prescriptive thing that you have to buy into or mold? Right. And then Raisin in the Sun shows up. Well, it doesn't apply to lots of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't apply to mm-hmm. an entire gender. Mm-hmm. It doesn't apply to all these other people. Right. So is it really the American dream is a kind of distortion of that? It's a right. very specific. I think Tanahasi quotes in Between the World and Me criticizes mm-hmm. the dream. He calls mm-hmm. it capital D always, the dream. Mm-hmm. He says, this is just a charade. This mm-hmm. is actually a pernicious mm-hmm. trap right. for people to buy into because right. it excludes all sorts of other people. Right, right. So yeah. what do you go after, uh, Reason in the Sun? So then I think we read... Um, I think this is where we go next. Yeah, I think then we read The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which is, so we're sort of moving forward in yes. time and kind of end, you know, um, well, first we move, yeah, to quite the contemporary and then um, wow. we end in a kind of with a, a, a science fiction work. But yeah. Um, yeah, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which kind of continues a lot yeah. of these ideas um, with, you know, and, and sort of um, introduces this character of Changez, who's a Pakistani immigrant and goes to Princeton and then works at this elite management consulting firm that's a kind of McKinsey right. stand-in. Um, and then 9-11 happens and he, you know, suddenly becomes kind of suspect, but also his family in Pakistan, you know, Pakistan yeah. is destabilized. Right. Um you know, it may, looks like war with India might be looming. And so he ends up kind of leaving, going back to Pakistan. And this whole story is told um, from the perspective of Chungus to a, an unnamed American interlocutor right. in Lahore. And there's just um, kind of a, a narrative ambiguity that's sustained throughout the novel about right. what who's actually a threat to whom and whether right. the American might be there to be on a mission to like kill him or right. something or whether he might be on a mission to kill the American. So, um, yeah. this is a, you went to Princeton as for graduate school. Right? I did. Yeah. And he comes out of Princeton as the, this is really the sort of the factory to churn out little Gatsby's. Yes. It's like you <laughs> yeah. make people who are going to make it big in Manhattan, right. work with right. McKinsey or Bain right. or one of those things. Yeah. And then he starts to doubt whether he's doing the right thing yes. by imposing this, very American corporate mm-hmm. profit mm-hmm. model on okay. himself and on these companies. Yeah. And there's a crisis of conscience, which is really nice. And then it's related to a woman, this woman, mm-hmm. right. which my students always 
find it kind of remarkable that her name is Erica. Right. Which is part of America. I know. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of a nice moment, actually. I sort of, it is yeah. really kind of a big moment in the book where you yeah. say, oh, it's I am America. Mm-hmm. And her name is Erica and mm-hmm. he's attached, but she's actually a very brittle, fragile, mm-hmm. tormented person in mm-hmm. a way, which is interesting. So America doesn't, is not the ideal, no. the happy place. Right. right. And it's not just because he's, a Pakistani background or mm-hmm, something. It's mm-hmm. really the place itself is corrupt, mm-hmm, I think, right? Mm-hmm. It's a really hard book to, to because after 9-11, he says the, the place is just holding on to some kind of yes. threat, threatbare idea of yes. capitalism. There's just hurting people everywhere. Yes, there's a real critique of nostalgia, the nostalgia of that um, of, right. of that moment, yeah. Um, and, um, uh, and the kind of uh, backwardness or the kind of holding on to something in um, that a, a vision of the past that doesn't exist anymore. And, and, you know, it says, what is that vision exactly? Is it a vision of security, of kind of integrity prior to some sort of violation? Right. You know? And she's holding on, this woman, Erica's holding on to this this dead ex-boyfriend right. she was like her first love so it's also a time before you're touched by mortality and loss um and yeah absolutely she's so much an allegory for the nation um, it's interesting it was written in the 2000s yeah, or something like 2007 2007 i, I believe so mohsin yeah. hamid and then you just said something which made me think of the Trump campaign, of course, Make America Great Again. Mm-hmm. It's a kind so of nostalgic. It's a throwback to an ideal. Yeah. And in some ways, people say this ideal has been compromised. Right. And this book is about whether the ideal was ever real or not. Right. right. And maybe it was real for some people. Right. I think for some people, I mean, and then he yeah. wonders, what did this place, did this, you know, country have a place for me anymore? Right. And so, right. yeah, I think we're back at this idea that these works for some people, but... Not and this is, I think, a good, exactly, like what we said earlier, the, it generates a lot of energy in people, this mm-hmm. ideal. Whether the ideal actually itself is right. to be critiqued, that's not quite the point right. so much. Right. But right. what does it produce in people? Right, right. This enormous attachment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. There's a great line in that book um, when he says, I arrived uh, in New York mm-hmm. from Paxson. There were, I, I, I became a New Yorker in that moment, mm-hmm. but I never became an American. Yes. Yeah. He says he's allowed to be this person, which is a fantasy about New York, which is probably right. also incorrect in a way, <laughs> you know. But I mean, it just when that this ideal of America, the book is not supposed to say, I think, the ideal is inherently wrong. Mm-hmm. What people make of it, mm-hmm. because I'm like I'm trying to just ask you a question. I think, do you think these books are trying to take away all these ideals, right. like wealth for Gatsby, for Madame Bovary, living a right. fancy life and having right. beautiful clothes and right. good skin, or for the, right. the reluctant fundamentalist to be a wolf on Wall Street, make right. lots of money, have a beautiful girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not about those things. It's more mm-hmm. what we do with our attachments to various things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good question. You know, is it just kind of taking them away? Is it just about stripping away of illusions? Um, and I think, you know, this is why um, the class is a bummer in a lot of ways, because it is, um, it is a lot of kind of stripping away of right. these illusions. But I think a, a really important question um, that, you know, that we keep, we, that I try to kind of keep sight of is um, how to balance the, um, how to maintain a balance between something like structure and kind of agency of sort of like individual right. personal agency and you know these larger structural economic or you know political forces right. that we have no control over because i think there is a lot of emphasis on um and in all of these books there's a lot of emphasis on and in our readings of these books emphasis on how these larger forces affect you know our desires and whether we're able to achieve our right. those desires and what we even want in the first place but um you know, I, I think something your question makes me think of is just, well, what do you do? You, you can't just take them away from people, you know? I well, mean, or you will, but they will attach to other things. Right. 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 You can take away the idea of home ownership for this family. Mm-hmm. They're going to want something because mm-hmm. we want something. Mm-hmm. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's the Lauren Berlant's idea of optimism. Mm-hmm. She said it's anything that's directed outward, mm-hmm. directed towards something. Mm-hmm. It's, right. It's a kind of reaching towards. Reach. Yeah, it's an attachment. And yeah. even if you blow up this fantasy, you're going to be like Gatsby and say, oh, I'm actually going to be really unhappy and end up dead in a pool. Mm-hmm. They're not going to want 
they're not going to get, people are not going to lose their ability to desire something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they could desire something else, the right. revolution, right. overthrow, whatever. They right. could desire, desire Bernie Sanders, I don't right. know, AOC, right. like there's right. always other attachments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, it's also about that, right? Mm -hmm. That we have, we need certain attachments. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think I sort of emphasize that less, but I think that you're right. I mean, yes, we do need to have those attachments. You can't just kind of, you don't just, even if you take away the object, you don't take away the need for those objects. I think so. Objects sort of give us meaning. They right. kind of, you know, determine our sort of um, purpose of action in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, and I've been thinking about it in terms of like, what's your, what's, what, what kind of, any for any individual kind of agency do they have in the light of these larger forces you know so um if we've kind of clarified right. the effects of these larger forces where does that leave you are you is it just fatalistic is it right. deterministic it can't be right and i think that's part of the that's also part of what i came to realize in teaching it the first time that I was really um, sort of invested in a kind of like critical mode of, right. of, of demystification. And the students were just kind of, um, I mean, they saw that, but they they weren't content with that. I mean, they, they wanted still to hold on to something. Right, and, right, right. And yeah. to hold on also to the idea of personal agency. I, mean, yes. I think, and I just came to realize how important that was to acknowledge and to talk about and to talk about that dynamic because it's just not sufficient to just be like well you know um you're constrained by your time and by these larger forces well it's it's also kind of a it's what you're saying it denies agency yeah it's saying oh it's hopeless it's futile you yeah. want you want to own a home there's right. redlining, there's right. going to be exactly. racist neighborhoods, you yeah. won't make it. Right. You can't tell people that. Right. Right. You can't even tell a woman in 1850s right. who shouldn't have nice right. clothes. Right. Because right. there's also, that to me sounds a little bit like as if then, and then everybody becomes equal, like the proletariat, mm -hmm. and must desire the revolution, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is a self-transformation, mm -hmm. which is, right. which is, right. Right. and you don't exist as a self, but you have a greater goal. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, your students are, because what do you take, like after Gatsby, after Raising in, this, Raising in the Sun, after Reluctant Fundamentalist, what do you hold on to? The book is Reluctant Fundamentalist, yet you said the ending is so ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't know how it ends. There's also a movie, I think Mira and I yeah, made this great right. movie. I haven't seen it. Which yeah. is... Which is kind of useful. I make my students sometimes write about the book oh, really? and the movie because uh -huh. the ending is different. Oh, really? So uh -huh. I can find out. I said, you have to read the book because the ending will be different. Interesting. She, okay. she does something else in the ending. Oh, it's kind of okay. interesting. Okay. But it's what we're talking about is what you said much earlier, kind of a structure of feeling or kind of this, we are moved in the world to participate in the world. Yeah. We attach to all sorts of things and right. fantasies and many of them are bad or, right. Right. or they actually... Um, like a ruse, like a trick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, oh, you'll buy a house. Right. You'll be forever indebted. Great. Exactly. Yeah. It's actually college, I think, is really it's yes. having suffering because people are saying, yeah. you're going to get this college degree and spend right. a quarter million dollars or, right. you know, University of California, if you're resident, it's right. cheaper, but right. it's a fortune for what? Right. The promise was social mobility. You're going to get a good job. Yeah. Great career. Right. That's no longer guaranteed. Right. So how do you, once you've stripped that away, Mm -hmm. then people are standing saying, well, what should I want now? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what do you tell them? Well, yes, yeah. like, good question. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then we end with um, The Dispossessed, which is a science fiction novel by Ursula Le Guin, yeah. um, which is a kind of utopian. I have not read, so I don't it's, know. It's yeah. really wonderful. Yeah. It's a kind of utopian, but very complicated, you know, um, a, a novel that imagines this other planet, uh, this these two twin planets, um, and a physicist from one of them goes to the other one, and, and one is actually just what kind of broke off from the other one. Um, it was kind of a utopian, founded by a, a utopian rebel, um, and it's an anarchist society. And then the other, kind of the, the older one that the this anarchist society broke off from, that planet is 
of a capitalist planet. Yeah. Um, and huh. so this, you know, this pretext of a physicist, a visitor from one, they've had no contact for like hundreds of years, although they have some trade. Um, and then this physicist goes to this other, to the, the capitalist planet and um, kind of visits it. And um, it's, it's, it's very complicated, but it's a really brilliant, I think, imagining of these alternate modes of social organization. Yeah. It's not at all simplistic. I mean, it's not at all a kind of... Um, it's, I think it's not clear which is the utopia, and that's that's kind of the main yeah. point. Um, and it's you know she was reading Kropotkin. I mean, she was sort of like quite steeped in anarchist theory, which is something that I think we don't often know very much about. I mean, I'm not an expert in this right. either, but we sort of just think of it as like lawlessness and you know right. lack of order. But um, it's very. Um, I mean, it involves a lot of like coordination and organization if you actually try to set up an anarchist society. And there's very, um, there are very strict kind of rules that, that have to be followed in order for it mm. to work. I mean, not rules in terms of like what behavior, but, you know, the infrastructure kind of right. has to be there in a way. Right. So, um, yeah, it's a really just brilliant kind of um, exploration of all of these different elements and so I think um, I end there because I think speculative fiction can really help us think about um, you know the possibility of another world it, it kind of yeah. denaturalizes right. the way things actually are which right. is something that can be quite that can feel quite bleak you know when we once we've read all of these yeah, things yeah, yeah. I forgot that we also we, we watch Parasite as well and we um I watched this documentary, Life and Debt, which was about um, Jamaica, the consequences of free trade on Jamaica, and compare that with Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place, which is about Antigua, so yes. it's also kind of like effects of, of colonialism. But it, it, so it can all feel very bleak, you know, and I think um, The Dispossessed kind of offers this really richly imagined yeah possibility of another world and i think um and that it feels like that you know not that you know i think she wants that Guin wants you to take the take it as a prescription of you know this is how right. it should be um but but the denaturalization of the way things are and there is a kind of just like hope i think there's a sort of faith um in which I think, and hope is distinguished from optimism. And I think that that's actually quite In what important. sense? How do you do that? Um, I think, so if I actually come back to this line from A Raisin in the Sun. There's a character, Joseph Asagai, who's this Nigerian student who's kind of a suitor for the younger right. sister. And um, they have this conversation about, um, you know, whether... Um, it's kind of worth trying to do anything because she's this moment of disillusionment because um, they've just lost all the money. And so she wants to go to medical school right. and now oh, their dreams yes. are dashed. Oh, yeah. And she's sort of like, um, you know, what's the point there? You can't get close enough to what ails the world. Um, right. you know, she wants to be a doctor in order to cure the ills of the world. Yeah. Just, there's no amount, there's nothing that can cure the ills of the world. And um, he kind of says, well, it's, he sort of basically ends up saying, you know, you, you, um, but you think that um, we're kind of moving around like a circle. Oh, she has this, this, this image of um, people kind of parading around in a circle, holding up a mirror to their faces. And he says, it's not a circle. It's actually a line um, huh. kind of extending infinitely outward. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's, and, and we have to sort of, and it, and I think I take that to just mean, um, that the the future is open, that the mm -hmm. future isn't determined, right. and he's not at all um, naively right. optimistic. Again, you know, he and he's talking about this in the context of his own kind of wanting independence for Nigeria, and he kind of says, and she says, well, what about all the corrupt, you know, Nigerians who will then just rule instead of the British, you know, post independence? Right. Um, you know, what what happens after that? And he says, you know, yes, like this is a very real risk um, and a very real possibility, but we have to take it. And huh. um, he says, you know, perhaps I will be killed in my own bed by, you know, the next generation of people if, if my ideas right. are kind of atrophied and I've ceased to be, right. um, you know, useful, but, but kind of so be it. And I think 
I, I feel like that vision of the line, it's very easy to think of it as just a sort of um, that it's about progress. And I find the students often just think, okay, it yeah. means that we're, we're progressing, we're moving on this, this um, upward trajectory. And I think it's just, it's just about the openness of the future. Yeah, and yeah. that I think is what hope is about some sense right. of the openness of the future mm -hmm. without any expectation of um, things going well right. or sort of right. with the full awareness of right. how yeah, yeah. terribly they could go. I mean, right. it's like an awareness of the contingency right. of history, um, I think, is... And that you have to continually probably readjust your expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which yeah. is really hard. So you don't focus on the future. This is what it's supposed to look like. You have to keep on revising it while, yeah. while you're progressing. Yeah, and you sort of have to keep going even yeah. though yeah. even though it's it, it's it could all end in disaster right. and it could all go wrong. So right. I think there's some there's there's that spirit of in the dispossessed as well, and it's another reason why. I think it's it's important to end sort of on that note. So there's yeah, no yeah. like guarantee. There's, right. there's no even reason to think it's going to end well. But right. nevertheless, somehow you have to kind of keep keep um, right. keep going. Do you I, do you think your students, sort of our students, this generation? I think they're being told a lot of times because of climate change, yeah. things are too late. Mm -hmm. And it it really frustrates me to no end to tell them yeah. it's too late, Yeah, which is sort of this double kind of cynical, like, oh, we screwed up. Yeah. Sorry. Right. And it's too late for you. Right. Which right. is really what it takes both the opportunity for them to do anything away and also kind of says we were so awful. Mm -hmm. Someone mm -hmm. says we are self-aggrandizing. We right. screwed up the world totally. Right. right. So too late, it means nothing in a yeah. way. Yeah. 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 Because it can't be too late for anybody. I mean, it's not too late for them. Right. It's too late for us, maybe. Right. Right. Just... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's yes. I think that's that's right. I mean, you sort of have to keep um, keep going, even though and and, and behaving like it's not right. too late. Um, because you know, other. I mean, otherwise, what's the point? You just right. Go to bed and, and go home. Do you, and and to go back full circle to sort of these this idea. Um, you know, we are attached to sort of silly things also. Like yes. These, we, right. we sort of want things. You know, right. we all want right, things. Right, right. And we live in a culture where we want new things mm -hmm. all the time, right? Mm -hmm. A new phone, a yeah. new this, a new that, an upgrade or something. Mm -hmm. Do you think you have a way to respond to that for the students, to explain to them what that cycle is or does with them? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it seems to be less about the objects than about... Right continually staying on your toes to be excited about new things. Right. Like it's a different kind of newness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's come up so much. I mean, I think you can see that very much in someone like, um, in like Emma Bovary, right. you know, who really sort of has that kind yeah. of desire for novelty that I also feel like is really, um, exacerbated by capitalism and by, you know, advertising <laughs> the profusion and things that we have access to. Um, so, yeah, but I mean, I do do this exercise at the very beginning in the first class. And um, I think, you know, I'll do it again in, in the last class where I ask them to just kind of, we do a word cloud where they just put in, like, and ask them, what to you is a good life? Yeah. So there's a question of what's the fantasy, what's our collective fantasy, right. or cultural fantasy, I should say, of the right. good life and what to you is a good life. And, um, you know, for, for most of, of course, you know, this is, you know, it's a particular, it's anonymous, but it's still, it's an exercise in a class, etc. Right. So maybe they're not putting what they would actually right. put and if they were to answer this privately. But um, the answers are very much, um, or most of them are, are kind of focused around like personal relationships, like health, like mm. family, mm. like love, like feeling yeah. understood. I mean, you know, I think these right. things that we all right. um, that we all want, and and then like basic like you know economic stability, like having yeah. enough. That is something I notice a lot is if there's an idea of enoughness um, in yeah. and sufficiency in in that word cloud versus when we do the word cloud for kind of cultural fantasies of the good life. Right. There's much more emphasis on abundance. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. 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 So you know. Um, I mean, I th and I think, yeah, sufficiency yeah. Um, 
is kind of. But that's a great, even a great opposition, abundance versus versus mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, what, yeah. what would enough mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think everybody is aware that that we know we don't have enough, but we know we're being told we don't have enough. Right. But it's not really our own desire right. so much. Right. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That enough has been. We've been sold that enough is kind of standstill. Right. Like if you have right. enough, you're dead. Right. It's like the right. kind of, you know, there's like the death drive or something. Yeah. Spaces. Yeah. 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 And there is something about desire, right? That you kind of, you do kind of perpetually want. Um, right. And, and that is kind of, you know, libidinal. I mean, I guess if you want to use right. a psychoanalytic framework, but um, I, yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of struck by, too, by, by how the idea of sufficiency can actually be, um, you know, and we think about something like contentment versus happiness, too, right. right? I mean, I think there as right. well, it's an idea of sufficiency as not just like um, some, as not some kind of like boring compromise, but actually, you know, in the way that in, in the term that self-sufficiency or something right, it's right, about right. kind of actual, it's about sort of independence and um, yeah. autonomy and actually, right. you know, um, um, yeah, having... When you live in California, do you think any of these Californian ideas, these kind of, which are dismissed very, very in a very facile way, I think that mm-hmm. this is where sort of New Age, a certain kind yes. of Eastern philosophy mm-hmm. came on, like the right. hippie movement. Right. I think these movements were quite important in America, actually. Yeah, I think that they yeah, eclipsed yeah. as stupid stoners is really wrong mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. That there was a sense to think contentment. Yes with where you are yes yes like being in the present being yes. present all of these kind of alan watts yes bringing buddhism to america which i, I actually like alan watts a lot yeah too, yeah because yeah. he got it yeah 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 <laughs> yeah i think um absolutely i'm i mean i think i'm probably influenced by those ideas i mean i have a meditation practice and you know i would have interested right. in buddhist thought um so and i i'm very aware of all of the kind of you know, peculiarities of Western Buddhism. Right. And um, I think now it's sort of even less the kind of countercultural hippie version as the kind of Silicon Valley, like mindfulness version mm. that is, you know, everywhere. And oh, yeah. um, so there have been some critiques as well of, you know, the way that mindfulness has been adopted by the companies, you know, so you're just encouraging, um employees to practice like mindfulness and stress reduction so that they can be more productive so that and this is the the critiques are often that this is once again a kind of um assigning a personal responsibility to what actually are larger structural problems so i totally see that and i think it's true that the way mindfulness gets deployed or you know and that's right. actually often mindfulness is in those contexts often totally divorced from Buddhist thought and yeah. Buddhist philosophy. But um, you know, I also think that we have a lot to learn from other systems right. of thought, and right. um, that you know there are non-facile. I mean, I'm also not a scholar of Buddhism, but you know, there are non-facile ways, right. and that that you know people in other cultures have thought very deeply about yeah. what the good life is and you know um do entail some of these notions and i also think the opposition between oh you're just being told to be to do mindfulness to be more productive as a member of your corporation you also have to live in a way i think yeah. to say you have to overthrow the corporation or right. these structures are not working anymore right. which is that may well be true right but that doesn't mean you can live your life right. by sort of railing against the system already. Right, right, right. Like you also kind of have to just get by. Like you right. have to kind of survive. And, right. and that's true for most of us, right? I mean, right. who are not in positions of power and or especially who are not if, revolutionaries. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially if you're very disenfranchised by yes. certain structures, then you should have every recourse to totally. actually help yourself as an individual. Totally. And not just be told, oh, that's foolish. You're just getting something nice for your next yes. five hours. But yes. You should really fight the system. Yes, I think this is kind of the same thing. Like it's not enough to just sort of have the critical like, superstructure. Yeah. yeah, you do need to sort of recognize that people need to like yeah. make it through life. Like, right. People need to make it through the day. Right. You know, including in your shitty jobs. And right. um, I don't know. Yeah. So I think like it's not enough to just sort of castigate people if they're not wanting to right. you know overthrow everything and yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah and and so it's kind of coming back to that same like non non-contempt right it sounds like a fantastic class 
Yeah. Fantastic laugh. It's actually, I really, it's actually rare that I really got, I feel like it's a sort of, I want to read, reread every text and I, I really think it's such like an yeah. amazing class oh, for, yeah. for them to go through and it is a bit of a trajectory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Without giving them an easy way out to yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the hope anyway. I really enjoy teaching it and the students have both, the, you know, the, the last time and, and this time have been really fantastic. And, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a topic that we're all interested in, right? I mean, it just like we're all trying to figure this out. Yeah. And I love the fact that's why I wanted to talk to you because I love the fact also to teach it as an intro to mm -hmm. the humanities or to comparative mm -hmm, literature because mm -hmm. it's not, these texts are not useful for us. Right. But they do model and show something that yeah. we haven't resolved. From, right. from like Antigone to Ursula Queen, like we have right. no idea really what's no. going on, which is also to me really interesting. We have no idea what's going on with right. us, right. with ourselves, even right. which is no, no. Like that's what's so strange to me. The subject has been theorized so much, but we really don't quite know. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So I want to thank you. Um, this has been a really fantastic conversation. Oh, so. Yeah. Uh, for our listener, this was a conversation with uh, Professor Dora Zhang, who is Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at the University of California at Berkeley. Um, your book, again, is Strange Likeness, Description in the Modernist Novel. You publish everywhere, so people can find you online. Do you have a social media presence? Uh, I am on Twitter. Yeah. You're on Twitter. And what's your Twitter handle? It's, um, it's Dora, and then there's two underscores, um, Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G. Yeah. Dora, two underscores, Z-H-A-N-G. So follow Dora on Twitter, please. Yes, we do actually say that. And um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast today.